My name is Millie Kendall. I am the CEO of the British Beauty Council. And to me, it's a matter of hard work. Knowledge has the power to transform the world, but it requires action to make change happen. I'm Kelly Kovac, the founder of Beauty Matter. The desire to have a positive impact is a noble concept, and it's within all of our reach. We just need to choose to do so. However, some people have the ability to affect change on a grand scale. These people are often a force of nature, unchangeable, unstoppable, unforgettable. Millie Kendall, OBE, embodies all these qualities. Starting her career at the age of 13, washing hair at her father's Beverly Hills salon, she has made it her mission as the CEO and founder of the British Beauty Council to show the power of the beauty industry to change lives and transform Britain's economic and social fabric. Hi, Millie. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. We've gotten to know each other sort of through the pandemic, doing lots of collaborations, which kind of came naturally. And hopefully, you know, in the fall, we'll meet in person, if not sooner. Can't wait. Yeah. So let's just dive in. You know, for you, beauty is really sort of the family business. And you got an early start shampooing in the Michael John Salon in Beverly Hills. Did you always know that you'd have a career in beauty? Do you know what? I'd always hoped I didn't. And I <laughs> and here you are. Yeah, just well, it's ironic, isn't it? Because at the moment I've got like a 15-year-old daughter who's doing exams here in England and the exams are sort of um, organized in a way to get them to decide what they want to do. And I said to her on the way in this morning, I'm 55. I still don't know what I want to do, you know. So I don't think I actually really knew. I, what I was very good at, I was good with numbers. And my mum, for fun, used to make me add up the telephone numbers in the telephone book. So I actually, weirdly, when I was about 13 working at Michael John, I wanted to be an accountant, but I didn't actually know what an accountant did. Oh, that is so, I can't even imagine you. I can't imagine you as an I accountant. I don't know why I wanted to be an accountant. I just always, I've always gotten on with my accountant, though. <laughs> I've always, always had a very good relationship with my, with my various accountants. But I don't know. It was just something I just really liked numbers. And I, I guess I didn't really know what they did for a day job. I just liked the, the sound of it. It sounded important. It was to do with numbers and money. And so, no, I didn't always really want to be. It was more of a, I like the lifestyle choice of being in the beauty industry. It's much more of a lifestyle to me. Well, especially since you started your career in the professional channel, which is definitely a lifestyle choice in many respects. But I think your career is so hard to put into a neat synopsis. And I'm sure that kind of the amalgam of all of your various, not positions, but going from big beauty to to entrepreneur has sort of created, I guess, who you are today, or at least kind of your touch points. You started in hair care in the professional channel, moved into beauty retail with Shiomura, did your own entrepreneurial beauty retail startup. You started a PR firm and then launched Ruby and Millie in 1998. So you really do kind of have that big beauty background, but I guess you've spent most of your career as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, I call it a jack of all trades, master of none, because I'm not actually brilliant at anything, but I'm just actually sort of very well-rounded if like... I've just been asked to do sort out the IT. I get asked to do a lot of things <laughs> that I can do reasonably well to a varying different degrees, but I wouldn't say I'm particularly brilliant at any one of them. I just make a lot of effort. 
in the stuff that I do. But I think sort of whilst a lot of those jobs not aren't normally transferable, it took me a long time to figure out what I was actually good at because I tried the hairdressing and what I could visually see or feel in my head did not come get to my hands. It just, I couldn't, I could see what I wanted in a haircut, but I couldn't cut the hair. Same with makeup. I could visualize what I wanted. I could probably knock out half a face, but I couldn't finish it. So I've never really been very good with my hands. So I can visually see things. I can see what I want on a website or on a page of a magazine or, or, you know, I can see layouts and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to actually physically doing stuff, I mean, I just, I can't, it doesn't manifest. And so I've always had a lot of respect for those service providers that can do, even down to, I can't pluck my own eyebrows. If I did, I'd have one that was, I don't know, half the size of another. I just, I can't, I can tell you what are a beautiful set of eyebrows, but do not give me thread tweezers wax it's a disaster <laughs> my children have been off I mean sadly guinea pigs you know me going let me just do that you know I'm just not very good at that kind of thing I have so much respect for people that can do that job would you say that kind of a defining moment might be that realizing, you know, I do think that especially in the early days of a career, it's definitely much more about figuring out what you don't want to do and what you're not good at than what you are good at. Do you think that it was that process that kind of led you on the entrepreneurial path that requires you in many respects be a jack of all trades? Yeah, I'm not so sure it led me to be entrepreneurial. I mean, that was sort of by default, not by design. That was because I needed, I wanted to work for two companies and the only way I could do it was to set up my own business. So I was already working for Shoe More and Aveda came along and they offered me a job. And I said, well, I don't want a job with you because then I'd have to leave Shoe. But if I set up a consulting firm, I can work for both of you, uh, which was quite naive because it was very difficult to focus on both and give them the same amount of attention. But then that led to me bringing on new clients like L'Occitane and Tweezerman and, and stuff like that. So that was more by default. I think what it did was it eventually somebody actually said to me, you're not good at that and you're not good at that. But what you are good at is this. And I was like, ah, oh, OK, because <laughs> I thought I was brilliant <laughs> at the other stuff. But, you know, I just wasn't good at the other stuff. And so and I've, it's always stuck in my head. And so everything I've done has been with a spin of comms added to it, because what I am good at is the communications piece. And obviously, that industry has changed so much from when I first started, when there were like two beauty PR agencies in London, and I think I was the third. And then now there's sort of hundreds of PR agencies and thousands of contacts because you've got digital platforms and social media and influencers and content creators and all kinds of stuff. And then you've got the sort of like style influencers or whatever you want to call them, the hairdressers and the makeup artists are all very influential at the moment, you know, or have been for years really. And so that game's changed. So you have to move with it. What the industry was like 30 years ago is not what it was like today. But I think it was a profound moment for me when I realized that this is probably what I'm good at, the communications piece, which now obviously I involve policy in it. So it's slightly, it's more like public affairs, really. You have your finger in a lot of pies, so to speak. I was in the UK in the spring. I was watching the news with my in-laws and I was like, oh, wow, there's my friend Millie talking about menopause. <laughs> oh, you saw that, did you? Because my dad lives in LA and he got a call from my auntie Barbara as well. Oh dear. Yes. 
you are involved in sort of lots of things all from an advocacy standpoint, but also a business standpoint. So what is your primary focus today? Oh, God, I mean, that's it's a really wide net, really, in a way. I mean, I guess overall, my primary focus is to raise the reputation of the beauty industry. You know, that's what's most important. And that's because if we don't raise our reputation, we won't be able to future-proof our industry. So there's a lot of challenges that our industry faces. Some of them are external, but some of them are internal. So we create problems for ourselves, you know, lack of transparency and marketing buzzwords and sort of that our, our lack of a voice in terms of the female workforce and the challenges with inclusivity. So we create a lot of problems for ourselves. And then there are also sort of um, other challenges like Brexit, COVID, <laughs> linear perception of our industry by business leaders and politicians you know thinking it's just fluffy stuff girls play with and them not recognizing that actually every morning when you wake up and you brush your teeth and you put your deodorant on you have a shower even though you're a you know politician standing in parliament you have used probably at least five personal care items to get you out the door if not a bit of wax in your hair and maybe you've brushed your eyebrows or something or put moisturizer on so our own bed that we've made that we're lying in that we need to sort out and then there are the external bits so my focus is really looking at what those challenges are and kind of facing them head on in a way so it might be with the menopause piece you know I, I've got friends of mine that are probably about five years older than me I've got in fact a number of very close friends of mine that I've worked with for many many years that are turned 60 this year and all of us have sort of gone into this sort of menopause situation this sort of I don't even know what to call it because it's very bizarre and a lot of them have lost hair I've had a lot of my friends that have lost quite considerable amounts of hair thinning hair etc and so I think that's what started me thinking about menopause and hair loss and people really understand what what's going on with menopause and I went to my GP my doctor and they kept fobbing me off and fobbing me off and then I sat down with Nadine Baggett who is a pretty influential content creator here in the UK used to be a journalist or still a journalist actually she basically told me what I needed to go and ask my doctor for and then I went to ask my doctor you know it's a sort of opportunities arise because I talk to a lot of people and I interact with a lot of people and then I think oh that's interesting that's not right so I think sort of my remit is to sort of tackle a lot of injustice that sort of happens sort of within and towards our industry that makes sense Injustice, I think, to me is the thing that like frustrates me the most. People not understanding our industry, people discrediting our industry, people being taken advantage of, not being heard. So if I can give a voice to the 88% female workforce in the UK, that's great. Whether that be about menopause or about pay or about maternity leave, whatever it is. I know during the pandemic, the professional beauty community really kind of came together and, and took care of their own. But you took the cause kind of straight to the top in the UK, trying to drive awareness and policy. I think a lot of your work really is on their behalf. And I mean, it's not only in the UK. I feel like the professional community and beauty advisors, two crucial parts of our industry, really don't have a voice kind of in the larger conversation of the industry. But speaking about the professional channel, you know, has the professional channel rebounded in the UK now that life has gone back to normal? Or are there sort of a residual impact to the pandemic? I hate to say it, but I don't think we've seen what's going to happen yet, because I think it's a bit too soon. So just to caveat, there are a lot of trade bodies in the UK, both representing hair and, and beauty, 
the challenges is that they're membership organisations, so they slightly have a different remit. They provide HR services and resources and insurance and stuff like that. And our sort of remit when we first launched the British Beauty Council was to reach out to all the trade bodies and to work collaboratively with them. So we had just we had started that process anyway before COVID. Thank God we did, because obviously that was needed more than ever. Because what we needed to do as a British Beauty Council is go to government with the challenges that those parts of the industry were facing. Because the thing that the government didn't have was the data, and we had the data because we had just collaborated with all the, all the trade bodies. We defined the industry and we valued it. So I knew the size of the workforce, how many women were in it, how much money we contributed. That was all really important. The challenges for the industry are so multifaceted and very, very different depending on whether you are a hairdresser with a salon or a beauty therapist that rents a room from somebody. So each one of those different business models has a challenge. And I would say that for the most part, the number of clients coming in is close to pre-pandemic levels. So that's a really good thing. The challenge has been is that now they're looking at their business models going, okay, this is not sustainable because people were running their business on debt. And so having gone through their savings, essentially, (laughs) and having had to raise more debt because take loans out, et cetera, that makes the business not as sustainable. On the high street, premises-based businesses have increased in our industry, which is, I would say, we're the poster child for the high street because where other businesses have really lost a lot of premises, we've increased. So I think we increased 2.2% over the pandemic. So we had beauty salons, nail salons and barbershops open. Hairdressing salons are slightly different. They have decreased the amount of premises businesses that they have in the UK but that's been over a much longer period so since 2017 so the hairdressing salon model might need to be updated so it's not just about the pandemic retail for example we had closures pre-covid anyway we were seeing closures Debenhams House Fraser there were a lot of our chain department stores that were closing so the pandemic sort of um, converted the lack of retail premises to e-commerce. So it's not like we've like lost a huge amount. We've transitioned in some ways. But I think the reason that we might have not seen the losses yet is because the government supported businesses with furlough and grants. So I'm afraid to say I don't think we've seen it yet, which is slightly worrying. I 100% agree with you. And I had that feeling sort of very early on in the pandemic because people, you know, when it first started happening, you had investors kind of pull back, obviously, for the uncertainty. And then you had those kind of waiting for distressed asset sales. And it didn't really happen. And I think it didn't happen for the reasons you said. You know, and then you also had Q4 and you had consumer shopping online. So many brands sort of picked up some sales there that they didn't have. But I do feel like the reality is kind of setting in now. And we may be on the other side of the pandemic, but there's a whole other set of crises that we're sort of navigating. And people also love to make sweeping statements like retail's dead, makeup was supposed to be taking its last breath during the pandemic. Now the headlines are reading the skincare boom is over. It's clickbait at the end of the day. I think that every business is is cyclical, but you've weathered tough times. What advice would you give to founders when it comes to navigating the next 12 to 24 months? 
Well, I mean, I would say for something like a hair salon, which I think is quite an interesting model, because generally they take ground floor premises, not in New York, but in London, they take ground floor premises. And I was at number 10 recently and I had said to them, what I don't understand is why can't they take second floor, first floor premises? Why have they always got ground floor premises? We don't get walk-ins anymore because people book online most often than not. So that in itself is like sort of slightly old fashioned. So we don't need the big rents and the big rates bills. We could actually probably be four floors up. All right, maybe it's to do with the water pressure. I don't know. But, you know, there are other things that we can start to look at that will make life a little bit easier for these businesses because it's not just one thing that's happened. It's always multifaceted. So there's always a number of things that happen that sort of make that whole. And so we need to have a bit of a revolution in how we operate. It could be hairdressers, people going freelance, we're on ground floors, the pandemic, Brexit, recruitment we can't find people to to come into the industry that's partly to do with we're keeping them in schools longer by the time they get out they're 19 they don't want to do a three-year apprenticeship at the age of 19 and be paid apprenticeship wages at the age of 22 you know so there's so many things that it's not just one and I think for a founder looking at a business whether that's service or product based I think there's a period of stability we need to have stability now but in order to do that and I said this right at the beginning of the pandemic this is an opportunity for us to look and see how sustainable are our businesses. Because if your business is built on debt, it is not sustainable. It's just not. And COVID was proof of that. We can't sustain our businesses like this. We have to be clever about how we operate. I suggested to people throughout COVID, take this as some time to look at your business, look at your P&L, look at your bank account, look at who you hire, your accountants, your lawyers, <laughs> you know, your workforce. And kind of get your house in order. And so I, th I think for a lot of people, it was really sort of, they live in an echo chamber. And also they're constantly looking over the garden fence at what somebody else is doing. And they're not paying attention to what's going on in their own business. I would really urge people to sort of really look at their own enterprise and not what's happening next door. Now is not the time to be doing that. Worry about that when you're sort of more stable. Also, there's the narrative that beauty is recession proof. And I think some people are operating under the assumption that this recession or these current economic times don't apply to them somehow. And I think the beauty category is very resilient. And I think we will outperform other categories. But I do think and I don't know what you think. I do think we have a tough year ahead of us. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, look, to take the beauty category, the way we divided it or sort of subdivided it within the British Beauty Council when we were doing our valuation was personal care, personal enhancement and services. So we broke it down into three different sections. Each one of those has its own challenges. So some brands will have, some companies will have a premium brand and maybe they're sort of more mass brand within their portfolio. The mass brand did very well during COVID because you could only buy those products in supermarkets and supermarkets were the only places that were open, essentially. So that sort of more mass brand outperformed their more premium brand. The premium brand has recovered better post-COVID and the mass brand is sort of almost overlooked and nobody's really interested anymore. So it's a bit swings around about us, you know. And so certain areas of our industry, so for example, like you say, with lipstick and people are going, oh, you know, lipstick's dead because of the mask and then that's rebounding. It's like, we're very lucky that our industry has so many different parts to it because not a lot of other industries have got that. So the overall picture is not bleak, but there will be some parts of our industry that just haven't kept up with the times. 
you know, like we're always talking about the revolution of retail, revolution of retail, let's get everyone online. And no one was interested, really. People were scared, they couldn't be bothered, it was too expensive, it wasn't. And now we're sort of there, you know, we've gone from 9% sales, I think, to almost 30 in the UK during COVID. External factors will help to make change in the industry. And like I said, each one of those individual sections, personal enhancement, personal care and services, each has their own challenges. But, you know, where makeup sales may increase, we might get less people going and having a blow dry. It's sort of, it's a bit swings around about. I mean, we met and started collaborating sort of in the pandemic, trying to help people navigate through this with the work related to the British Beauty Council. And, you know, one of the things that I, well, I mean, I love a lot about the work that you do at the British Beauty Council, but one of the most interesting things to me is that most trade organizations globally are a bit staid in their branding. They all kind of look the same, a little sort of retro, if you will. They all tend to move really slowly. And the British Beauty Council launched in 2018, you look and you act like the scrappy, cool, indie beauty brand. Was that your vision of the organization? I mean, you've gotten more accomplished in five years. I'm like welling up with tears. Have you met <laughs> well, me? No. <laughs> I am scrappy. But no, seriously. <laughs> it, that is so me. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've gotten more accomplished in five years than most trade associations have achieved in decades. Oh, I just think, again, it's the sort of historical nature of trade organizations. You know, they are, they have to, I say pander, it's a terribly negative word, but they have to accommodate their members. And what I have to do is think about the future. What I've tasked myself with really is to think about the future and what's best for the industry. And that's not always going to appeal to, to some individuals, but overall, that's the that's the vision. And sometimes you do have to be a bit scrappy. And also the thing is, we're very, you know, we could be very nimble. We could really move very quickly because I'm not held down by decades of bureaucracy. You know, there are some organizations in the UK that are 50 to 100 years old, you know, they've been going for a long time. There's a lot of people on those on the board of those organizations that have been there since before I was born. So our industry is modern. It needed modernizing. That was the sort of frustration of why we set this up in the first place, because myself, my friends, people that I know have brands and retailers and, you know, are hairdressers or session hairdressers or makeup artists that work on, you know, TV or whatever it might be. Those organizations didn't appeal to, to my cohort. And, you know, I know quite a lot of people in the industry and everybody agreed that those organizations were just very old fashioned. And middle-aged white women, sorry, it's just a terrible thing to say. Middle-aged white women, middle-aged white men, not very representative of society, not looking forward. I believe they have their place and they have their membership and they do a very good job. But somebody needs to shout louder on behalf of the workforce. And that was sort of, I guess that's represented in the sort of style of the council, really. I have used the work you do and the positioning and the the nimbleness and speed as an example for some of the organizations I'm involved in, because honestly, I don't think that we, I mean, the United States needs something that has the spirit of the British Beauty Council, because there's an awful lot of work to do here as well. It's a dream of mine to do the American Beauty Council. It is a dream of mine. Okay, well, Millie, if you want to do it, count me in. <laughs> 
trust me, it's on the cards. I've been talking to somebody who I'm actually seeing tonight about it. But we've been told to, because we're like, me and him are like racehorses. We're like running ahead, you know. We've been, somebody's pulling our reins going, whoa, hold it. It really is, it is necessary, so. I can't believe I've just, I've just referred to people as middle-aged white women when actually I'm a middle-aged white woman, just for clarity. I, we, we both are. <laughs> and you probably can't see me, but I am 55, which does definitely classifies me as a middle-aged white woman. I think the thing is, is that I see the industry slightly differently because I did come from the professional side. So professional services, there's a lot of creativity in, in that area that maybe in manufacturing, it's not as obviously creative, retail and manufacturing. But when I was creating a brand or running a shop or working in shops, I did add an element of creativity to those tasks that I did within those environments because that's just who I am. I grew up in hairdressing. Can't get more creative than that. So I do think that our industry is creative, very accepting of people, a really great place to work if you are if you feel like you don't fit in anywhere else. And so I think that's sort of part of the sort of overall look and feel, if that makes sense, of the British Beauty Council. It's much more creative than trade, if that makes sense. So to me, it's not a trade. It would be a craft or an art. That's the way I see our industry. It's much more artistic than just trade. I agree. And and also, I think the work you're doing, it has sort of a very defined universality to it where some organizations don't think big picture just sort of the the immediate needs of their membership but you know we all operate as an industry but you've tackled really big really really big topics some of the commissioned reports and for everyone reading they they are a good read the value of beauty diversity inclusivity the courage to change you also established recently the sustainable beauty coalition and created the planet positive beauty guide which is i think so important because you know, that clean beauty, let's just call it clean beauty for lack of a better definition, even though there is no definition. No, I know. It is so rife with greenwashing and marketing speak that doesn't mean anything and a lot of fear mongering. It kind of, in some ways, it launched with like, I think the best of intentions, but it has also brought out the worst of the beauty industry in many respects. But I think this goes back to when I was got in my early 20s working in department stores and we used terms like non-comedogenic and hypoallergenic and you know we're always creating these marketing buzzwords that just lack transparency and they're not universal and they're not really understood and the consumer doesn't get it and this and sustainability has become like a trend and that's so wrong it's so wrong it's like this is a crisis it's not a sort of something to hang your hat on you know and so I find it very frustrating that people don't see sustainability or environmentalism in the way they should, really, in our industry. They're using it to sell product. And actually, the fact is, we should probably buy less. hate to say that as a CEO of the British Beauty Council, but we should buy more wisely (laughs) and probably buy less product. I've thought the same thing. I was like, how can we as an industry or how can a brand talk about sustainability on one side? And then we have a business that the very business model is predicated on launching products or new products. Everything is about newness that no one needs. Because it's consumable consumerism. It's consumable. They're consumables. The thing is, is that we're not nearly as bad as fashion. Fashion is much more 
worse impact on the environment. And also just the nature of the fact that we use nature and plants is actually quite a good thing. There is a sort of element element of circularity in that. So because they grow and then we pick them and they grow and we pick you know, so that's a good thing. But our products are consumable, so we use them and then we throw them away. And the thing is we probably don't finish them really before we throw them away and then we chuck them away and then what? You know, they're either too small to recycle or, you know, like with, you know, you can't have a PCL pump because it's got the metal in the coil going through the pump. I mean, there are so many problems. I do think it's important for people to consider what they're saying before they say it about their product because I don't think that anyone would condemn you for being on a journey what will happen is at some point there will definitely, most definitely be a backlash of people that have said something that isn't true. And sustainability is about packaging, product, your business model, your how you treat your workforce. There are so many other elements in it. It's not just about carbon positive packaging. It's not about that or clean. What is clean? I don't get it. I know. <laughs> so- I think every time I talk to you, like the time just flies by. I feel like we just got started, but I'm getting the time to wrap up texts. So I have one last question for you. You know, we both have what I like to call historical perspective. And I don't think that I have ever seen the beauty category move as fast, be more competitive, have more funding at play when it comes to indie beauty brands. I'm curious what your take on the current state of the industry is and and sort of what you think the future has in store. I've been in the industry long enough that I remember when those original sort of indie brands came in in the sort of late 80s, early 90s and were sort of sucked up by the big corporates. So I think it's very similar to that. It was when makeup artists and hairdressers came out from behind the camera, became the stars, were published on the pages of magazines. So we're seeing a sort of almost like the same thing happen again. I was just talking to somebody about it being, it's like um, the pendulum swinging. We're getting there again. It's coming back to that. I wonder if that had anything to do with the recession at the time and us being nimble and trying to reinvent ourselves and here we go again. I think that what's happened over the past two years is that those indie brands have been very interesting. They've been able to change, move, navigate this pandemic. Some have been successful, some have not, but all of a sudden eyes are on them. The eyes are definitely on them. And so it reminds me of the late 80s, early 90s. And so I think that it's exciting. It is an exciting time. And also there are elements of the industry that we probably overlooked or ignored or have come up from nowhere. You know, we've never included content creators in our valuation. That's the whole area of business of revenue that has grown so dramatically over the past three, four years that we wouldn't have put it in our valuation four years ago because you couldn't value it. Now, it has a pretty clear value, you know, both economically and culturally. So we intend to redo the value of beauty with hopefully including content creators. So things have changed dramatically. But our industry always does. I mean, think five years ago, permanent tattoos were not maybe a bit. Now everyone's having, you know, dermablading and lamination and all the kind of stuff that we're, we're seeing that didn't really exist very widely before. So those kind of things move quickly. Laser. Jeez, that's that whole part of the industry. My God, that's moved fast, you know. I can't go and have a facial without without somebody lasering my face. Before, I just thought they did that to remove hair. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's like we're moving at like this warp speed and it's difficult to know where it's going to land. But yeah, we are moving very, very quickly. 
into the future. And I'm really pleased with that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think there's so much innovation happening. I think the way we shop for and engage with beauty products is probably something that we can't even contemplate right now. But I think that anytime there's sort of a crisis, I think there is a natural sort of almost like cleaning of house, you know, brands that didn't really have a reason for being tend to be the collateral damage, unfortunately. But out the other side of it comes a tremendous amount of innovation. So I'm also really excited for kind of what's next. I agree. We haven't even started on the metaverse. Oh, the metaverse. I know. I, I'm interested. We haven't even gone there. That's a whole other episode. I, it really is because I'm kind of conflicted. I'm fascinated by it on an intellectual level. You know, I had someone actually give me a tour of the metaverse. And then I was just like, wait a minute, this is what it is? Like, it is a lot less refined and it moves a lot slower than I had in my head. So, yeah, I mean, I think that right now... It's so funny, isn't it? Honestly, it's also a little bit of, you know, brands need to be focusing on, especially during kind of what's happening on the real world where they get real cash to pay their real bills. And I also think that there's the chance that all this investment in the metaverse, it's diverting funds that could help us fix the planet. We've kind of screwed up. Yeah, I agree with you. I do agree with you. I so, do agree with you. I'm very conflicted about the whole I, thing. I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> I thought I could just get to it on my phone. I was completely, I'm such a Luddite. I was like, oh, how do I get into the metaverse on my phone? No idea. It's been hyped so much. I was like, I just assumed it was available to everyone. But I, I now know more because I did have a meeting with Metro as well. So I do know a bit more about it. But I find it's full of sort of contradictions. So you would assume that it would be easy to navigate off your phone, but you can't. You need a high-powered processor and a, a laptop or a desktop, which is strange. And then you also have kind of there is no infrastructure and it's very, very slow and it's always crashing, which I, I was I found it. Like what I had in my head was not what it is in reality, but I also understand it's early days. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. That's for definitely for another conversation. It <laughs> is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Millie, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to chat to you and I will see you very soon. Yes. I'm Millie and for me it's a matter of hard work. I think that hard work encapsulates dedication, passion, putting in the hours, knowing the history and all of those things I absolutely love doing. For Millie, it's a matter of hard work. Beauty may have been the family business, but showing up every day, being curious and passionately building a career based on diverse experiences and deep relationships has positioned Millie perfectly for the current stage of her professional life. In just five years, the British Beauty Council has accomplished more than most trade associations have achieved in decades, taking the business of beauty straight to the floor of Parliament and the doors of 10 Downing Street, raising awareness and changing policy. So in the end, it's a matter of hard work. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. If you like what you heard, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com or follow us on social media. 